Welcome to Blockchain Recorded, the podcast for the tech curious, where we talk about anything and everything related to the exponentially evolving crypto, blockchain, and Web 3.0 space. Our mission is simple, to share knowledge, facilitate discourse, and help evolve education in blockchain fundamentals, decentralization solutions, and relevant use cases for today's digital economy. I'm your host, Nina Tserar. For the next two episodes, my team and I are doing something different. To honor the end of our second podcast season, our team prepared a showreel of conversations that resonate with us and remind us of why we do what we do. Today, you will hear part one of our two-part highlights showreel series and hear the following season one guests. Denis Yazbets from 4th Tech, Tom Ivey from Edgeware Agency DAO, Ivar Mosman from Blockstream, Vanina Ivanova from Empire, and Global IDs, Greg Kidd and Mitya Simcic. We're grateful to everyone in our community of guests, sponsors, and listeners. Without your support, we would not be who we are today. Enjoy. Before we begin, this podcast is possible by our sponsor at Ambire. The Ambire wallet is one of the top products in crypto asset management. It is the first open source non-custodial smart wallet that delivers exceptional user experience combined with solid security. With Ambire wallet, users can easily navigate the world of Web3. It comes packed with features like built-in swaps, cross-chain bridges, integrated earning opportunities, and more. In addition, Ambire offers things like human-readable transaction parsing, eliminating ERC-20 approvals and front-running protection. The smart wallet uses gas abstractions that allow for unique features like paying for gas with stable coins. Users can batch multiple transactions to save time and gas fees. The wallet also supports NFTs and allows you to connect to any dApp via Wallet Connect. You can use it with an email and password or add hardware wallets or hot wallets as signers to upgrade your security. And the best part? Ambire speaks human. The UI is friendly and informative, ensuring you understand what you're doing and eliminating risks for mistakes. Ambire wallet users are currently eligible for continuous wallet token rewards. To learn more and get your Ambire account today, visit www.ambire.com. That is A-M-B-I-R-E.com. Today, I'm speaking with Denis Yazbets. Denis is the CTO at Fortech, a veteran blockchain developer and a Kawasaki Ninja writer. Yes, you heard correctly. We will talk about blockchain, data privacy, data decentralization, decentralized data cloud storage solutions, and Denis's views as a developer. Hi, Denis, and welcome to Blockchain Recorded. Hi, Nina. So you're a software engineer, and I've always been curious what goes on in a developer's mind. What would be necessary to achieve full decentralization? Or maybe what would be the steps that you at Fourth Tech need to take to achieve full decentralization? So for us to have a fully decentralized solution, uh, we have to move uh, our public A repository, uh, file storage, and user identification information to a safe and decentralized storage. In some cases, it's also crucial to have a GDPR-compliant decentralized solution, which often limits uh, our choice. Uh, we also did some research and brainstorming on this topic, which maybe brings us to develop a new decentralized storage solution. Ah, okay. So decentralized cloud data storage... Um, that brings us to this topic. What is it? What does it consist of? And most importantly, how does it work? Decentralized cloud storage is a network uh, consisting of multiple nodes. Ideally, the network has thousands of nodes uh, located across the globe that are independently owned and operated. And mm. 
every node in a network uh, can store data. Um, in other words, a node is a server, computer, or any other device that can store data. And the beauty of decentralized cloud storage is that, that your data is very secure. Uh, at first, your data is end-to-end -end encrypted, which means mm -hmm. that your data is encrypted on a user's computer before it's uploaded on a network. The second thing is that the data is, in most cases, um, broken into pieces mm -hmm. and then spread out to the network of nodes, which makes it extremely hard to steal your data. It's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and the next thing is that even if some nodes are offline, you can still access your data. I see. So more nodes mean stronger decentralization. Um, you mentioned you did research on a viable decentralized cloud data solution for Fourth Tech. Can you talk about that a bit more? Yes, it's true uh, that we have been working about um, how to approach this issue from 2017 on, mm -hmm. uh, when the plan was to store the encrypted exchange users' data on IPFS. To clarify, uh, when users exchange data using our 4DX protocol, uh, blockchain is not used to store data files, but to record links to the metadata files and their checksums. Mm -hmm. And then metadata files containing additional info, such as attachments, uh, their checksums, uh, subjects, mm -hmm. description, etc. Mm -hmm. The data files are being exchanged between users or between wallets are being temporarily stored in, a, in cloud storage. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To truly decentralize our solution, IPFS would be appropriate, but we could not get it to work with GDPR. Mm. Um, the data files once recorded to IPFS are immutable, uh, but we needed a immutable solution. And the GDPR states that data can be modified or erased where necessary. So given this GDPR factor, does this mean you can or cannot achieve data decentralization? Decentralization of data can be achieved, uh, but it's mm -hmm. hard to be compliant at the same time. Okay. Um, so what we're thinking now is to offer users two choices. One is to use the cloud temporary storage where data is mutable and can be deleted. Mm -hmm. As explained previously, mm -hmm. the Fortech wallet uh, to wallet data exchange protocol does not store any personal data on the blockchain. Um, mm -hmm. The data is stored off-chain. Um, the protocol re records links to encrypted files and hashes of the encrypted content on the blockchain. And the hashing of exchange data enables GDPR compliance, for mm -hmm. example. If there were a request to delete some data, uh, the network con controller would be able to delete the requested data from off-chain storage, uh, leaving what would then become an empty hash on-chain. Okay, I see. And then what is the second option you mentioned? Um, or to offer users a choice to select a decentralized option to temporarily or permanently store their received data. Mm -hmm. There are already three viable options on the market that offer data decentralization. There is the Filecoin project, mm -hmm. uh, SIA, and storage. Uh, mm -hmm. Either we connect to one of the existing solutions or we develop a unique one. Denis, thank you very much. Uh, thanks uh, to having me. Our talk today will reveal the ins and outs of the Polkadot Substrate Edgeware blockchain, its interoperability and advantages, use cases, the Edge token, for which we have some news today, the Edgeware agency as a DAO, DeFi plans, and much more. With us, we have Tom Ivey, the director of Edgeware agency, a chain-funded working to grow utility of Edgeware, I hope I said that correctly, and an elected council member of the network. Tom, welcome to Blockchain. Blockchain recorded. 
Thank you. Excited to be here. I understand this is uh, month two, so congrats to the, to the new venture. Yes, yes. It's month two, your episode four. And actually, we briefly or kind of sort of met uh, during the our roundtable with Fourth Tech. That was sort of our, our episode zero. Uh, I think you tuned in a, a little bit in the episode, so we didn't actually have a chance to personally speak, but excited to do a one-on-one with you now. Yeah, that was a blast and happy to be back for sure. There's so much to ask regarding the Edgeware and Polkadot ecosystems. But first and foremost, can you tell us about yourself and how your path has led you to the crypto blockchain world where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I, uh, I actually have a degree in the, in the ancient world of academia um, in philosophy. Oh. And oh. from there, I kind of took a, a strong interest in like just public and political economy. Um, mm-hmm. I think this is like, the you know, people talk about religion and morals. And I was like, hmm, these things seem to be kind of fading in power. What is the most um, efficacious way to deliver improvements to people on a day-to-day basis? And I was like, okay, probably by participating in designing economies. Um, I ran briefly for office after college uh, in my home state of Michigan here in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was largely an experiment. Um, was doing governance experiments then, doing governance experiments now, so no changes there. And I dropped out because I was very dissatisfied in the uh, pay-to-play nature of that space, which was like, they wheel you in front of the special interest groups and they say, hey, you know, you got to kiss the ring, agree to promises. If you do not, we will find somebody who who will agree to those promises. So in the US, I just felt like, you know, the system was blocked at the very beginning by how much money you had or how much money you could could extract from special interest groups. Mm -hmm. From there, I uh, got introduced to my old team, Commonwealth Labs. They were just beginning... Uh, to conceive of Edgeware, the network, um, after speaking with Gavin Wood, and I can get into that later, the kind of like Edgeware origin story. And uh, I was like, hey, are you guys, you know, you, it seems like you are trying to innovate in the space of governance. I think digital governance is, is one of the, the highest kind of return on investment ways to improve um, societies across the world. Let's, let's hang out. And uh, from there, we launched Edgeware. Um, and I left Commonwealth Labs at one point, And did that to help lead the agency. Um, and Commonwealth Labs continues to participate in the network. Um, they're council members uh, and, and a massive developer con- contributor. Um, but, you know, the community really owns and, and operates uh, the chain. So all cool stuff. So let's let's just jump in and talk about the Polkadot ecosystem. As far as I understand, so uh, there's two structural components of the Polkadot multi-chain, if I'm not mistaken, right? There's the relay chain and then there's the parachains. But for the relay or just the, the layperson, um, for the regular listener, this can be really confusing as there's substrates, parachains, as I mentioned, the relay chain. Can you maybe clarify that for us a little bit so we can start off with a with a clean understanding? Yeah, absolutely. So substrate, I'll start there. I, I prefer to call this like the the WordPress for blockchains. It's a mm-hmm. kit that is highly modular that you can deploy to build a variety of chains that mm-hmm. focus on the kind of like business logic and use case. And we used it to deploy a smart contract platform that has on-chain governance. Uh, meanwhile, Polkadot used it to deploy a relay chain, which provides you know security to other chains. Mm-hmm. We're probably going to see a huge explosion in people using this kind of like technical stack of substrate for many different purposes. Um, and the relationship between a pair chain and a polka dot or a relay chain is simply one of transferring the kind of authority to validate and produce blocks or to control the, the state change of the chain to the relay chain network because it obtains 
better um, kind of economies of scale. If you pool your funds, like my, my favorite explanation for this is um, a relay chain is the United Nations and mm. parachains are member states. They're pooling their resources and their, you know, their security stuff so that they can obtain a better quality with lower cost. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the big innovation. And in the future, we might even see non-substrate-based chains connect to Polkadot or other relay chains as parachains. But for now, Substrate really enables a modular and plug-and-play experience. This is, you know, it's still so new and so early in, in the Substrate ecosystem that mm -hmm. um, some of these features aren't totally present. But long-term, you know, I think it's going to be massive. It's going to be so easy to build and launch chains. It's like, bring, you know, bring your validators, bring your business use case, and, and let it rip, and you'll be good to go. And from, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Keep going. So that that would be possible. You're saying that t today we have the the substrate com concept, but in the future that won't be necessary. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm saying that um, even what substrate looks like today will probably change markedly. Like you could even mm. imagine, you know, a one click launch a blockchain, attract some validators, design your token economy. Mm. Um, substrate as as a philosophy for architecting blockchain ecosystems is is just profoundly different. It says let let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, mm. because the costs of launching, operating, maintaining, securing them become so low. And if we think back to, you know, the original kind of like blockchain innovation, we were like, oh yeah, blockchains make coordinating cheaper and the transaction costs lower and the firm costs of doing business across the globe 24 hours in a, in a secure way without an intermediary, um, increasingly low. So substrate is like an evolution of that stage. It's like, we invented the blockchain to make some things cheap, and now we're reinventing the blockchain ecosystem to make it a lot cheaper. What about interoperability with Ethereum and other layer one chains? Is there a solution plan for this? Yeah, lots of teams are thinking about this. Um, I would guess that, you know, Dot and Kusamo may be one of the first uh, mm -hmm. to finalize this bridge. Um, in, a, in a big way. On our side, we have a team called PicoSwap, which is looking to deploy an EVM, EVM bridge to Ethereum at some point soon. So this, mm. this is um, not, uh, the, one, the one kind of caveat I would say is that this bridge will connect to the EVM on Edgeware. It will not connect necessarily to the whole of Edgeware. So right now we transfer tokens back and forth between like the two kind of faces of the Edgeware network. Mm -hmm. um, so this will connect to one side. We are still looking for the Rust Wasm side bridge solution. Um, that, that will likely come in the future. And a little shout out to some teams that are thinking about bridges in a really new way as well as like uh, Axelar is one of the names. So instead of mm -hmm. like, instead of connecting to, you know, you've got 18 bridges because you want to talk to 18 chains, you might talk <laughs> to one chain and that could be Polkadot um, mm -hmm. and, and its community of pair chains um, in kind of a, like a gated wall style. Or it could be Axelar, which says bridge to us and we'll maintain a bunch of these other bridges. So we are just beginning to see a huge explosion in solutions and innovation for, for bridge uh, technology between between chains. And the the economic implications of that, I think, will be interesting um, and, and political also. And the reason I say that, and I'll get off topic for one second, is within Substrate, um, because everything is so modular, and again, plug and play, mm -hmm. you can... The, the, the technical advantages uh, of having any feature kind of goes away because your competitor can just plug it in too. So mm -hmm. the difference really in my mind is what is your community willing and not willing to do? So we'll see kind of a federation of values-based advancement, I think. And again, like that's going to look a lot more like, you know, member states 
within kind of United Nations like organizations who have common values, common goals, and who may not want to interface. Even if the even if the interoper interoperable technology is there, they may decide not to because of the things that that blockchain specializes in or has done in the past or the values of that community. Yeah, and this 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 also makes me think about your Edgeware identity. There's a mention on your website that with Edgeware you own your identity, control your data, etc. So just sort of philosophizing a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so let's let's sort of take a turn. Let's talk about Edge and uh, your so your token and into staking, etc. And you have some uh, sort of breaking news, right? That happened today. You were yeah. You, um, you, we have to talk about that. Absolutely, I was up at uh, one, one to four a.m. this morning, making sure everything went went pretty smoothly. Yeah, uh, we launched on the KuCoin exchange. Yeah. So KuCoin is rapidly growing. We're super excited to be there, and partly because it, it gives us accessibility to many parts of the world that are existing kind of official exchange um, or kind of community approved exchange, I'll say, um, Bittrex Global doesn't have access to. So, so now mm. more people can access and participate in the edge ecosystem than ever before. That's a big one for us. Um, it makes us more resilient to a variety of like economic problems and attacks. And it's something the community has wanted for over about a year, really. We, the, the process used here was strange because it had never been done before. We went to Kukun and we said, hey, we're like a DAO. We have no, there's no, you know, a main corporation here. We don't really have a core dev because we're just a set of people cooperating, a set of organizations cooperating. Um, how can we onboard to your exchange? And mm. Kukun said, that's insane. We've never done it before, but let's figure it out. Um, so we're super grateful to them for having the patience to, to be innovative, um, especially while they've been growing at an immense rate over the past couple of years to really become like a top, top five, top 10 global exchange. Um, and so we did this partly by a set of community votes on a proposal where, and if, and if you know, I don't know if you've ever like really gotten your head into listings before, but there's a lot of NDAs and non-disclosure agreements where you know, the identity of the exchange and the amounts at play, whether it's for a marketing campaign or otherwise are, are basically secret and you can't speak. So right. we had to go to our community and say, hi, we you know, we think we've got a cool opportunity here. We cannot tell you what it is. Coinbase Ventures selected you to be part of an open financial system. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Coinbase, back uh, when Commonwealth Labs was working on the core version of Edgeware, um, like pre-launch, invested. And as a result, Coinbase Ventures holds a lot of edge tokens. Mm -hmm. So we are deeply interested in listing on Coinbase at some point. We're currently working on what's called the you know, Coinbase Rosetta integration, which is an API that um, Coinbase asks projects to participate in before they can kind of go through their process. So we have, they have, you know, in our mind, a an interest in bringing edge to the world. Um, they hold a lot of it and they, they previously expressed interest in that. Um, so that's kind of where things sit, sit there. Mm -hmm. I think what they particularly liked about edge was again, that interest that the, both the substrate technical layer, as well as, the governance experiments that we continue to conduct. I hope to talk again to you soon. Yes, Nina. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. So today we're talking with Ivar Mosman, the business development director at Blockstream. Ivar has a background in finance and has worked in sectors such as fast-moving consumer goods brand management, fashion, business consulting, government, and is a serial entrepreneur. He's been going deeper and deeper into the crypto rabbit hole since 
2014 and has been doing public speeches, organized crypto meetups and worked professionally in the crypto space since 2016 for companies such as BTCC in Shanghai, China, Ballet Physical Hardware Wallet. And since recently, he joined Blockstream as the business development director. So welcome, Ivar, to Blockchain Recorded. Thank you, Nino. Great to be here. Yeah, you have an interesting bio. Um, I see you've jumped around throughout different industries. So fashion and government. How did all those experiences uh, lead you to crypto? Like what made you jump to the crypto world? Yes. So, I mean, I think for, you know, for everyone, uh, it's, you know, the famous story of the, of, of the rabbit hole. For me, it was, mm-hmm. um, so I had a background in finance and and uh, I think by spirit, I'm a bit like, I don't necessarily like authority very much. Um, <laughs> I don't like being told what to do. And I think a lot of yeah. crypto, crypto people have that thing. They have the libertarian thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I first heard an interview on, on the Joe Rogan experience um, with the Andreas Altonopoulos. I, mm-hmm. I don't know how many thousands of people he brought into Bitcoin, but you know, I heard it was like a two or three hour interview. He just, he just broke it down. Uh, what is Bitcoin? And, and for me, it just clicked instantly. You know, like on a, not not on, not on a on a technical level. I didn't read the white paper. I didn't. But, but you know, when he explained it, you know, it I just kind of saw the vision. You know, I see okay. where this is leading. It like yeah, it was obvious right. to me. It's obvious. And then sorry, you go deeper and deeper, and you kind of get more interested. I've, I've always been interested in tech, computers finance and this, these things and um, you know being a free spirit you know all these things come together in crypto you know i think you know it's political it's philosophical it's it's crypto you know it's it's, it's tech it's so many different things and it, it goes to the heart of like the you know the power structure of society so it's, it's like such a crazy it's a beast of of a, of a thing so i think it just sucks in so many people and yeah, definitely people. it definitely draws you, you in right get rich. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so it was yeah. Joe Rogan. So you were listening to Joe Rogan. It's not like you came across the white paper or heard about Bitcoin, the the pizza story. You basically that that was what drew you in. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, he, yeah, he, he, I think he, he's he he's down. pretty he's pretty convincing. <laughs> he yeah. is, you know, and, and I think some people you could hear, you know, when he speaks, it's very, you know, you know, you can pick up the truth, you know, and he he puts it very eloquently. Like I don't understand. You know, after people, you know, if after hearing Andreas Olympus speech, I don't understand how you can walk away and not be yeah. totally fascinated. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I don't right. how can some people not get it? Yeah. Even some tech people that, you know, they don't get it or, or finance people. How can you not understand this? So I think mm. either you truly don't understand because I don't mm. know, you, you like a vision or whatever. I mean, because a lot of smart people that don't get it, you know, so I, I, I sometimes struggle. So either they're not, they're being dishonest. But, but, you know, because they have other sort of um, agendas, so they don't, it's not in the interest to, you know, so they might be lying or something. But I think if you understand crypto and Bitcoin, you, you have to be, you have to be on team Bitcoin, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's difficult because you mentioned if you're in the corporate rat race, right? I think it's difficult sometimes to see it when you're in there, when you're, when you leave and when you're your own sort of independent, you know, when you're when you're working independently, like you said, you know, you're not you're not answering to authority. You're just you're sort of in charge of your own self actualization, right? I, I think some some people just don't can't see it, don't see it. Just you know, maybe maybe get influenced by the propaganda that it's a scam. So I don't know. I I agree with you. I think it's it's hard to to not have that element of doubt and say, hmm, maybe there's something here, right? So, but but given all Definitely. that. Yeah. Given all that. So then how did you, okay, you've tried different things. So I guess, why did you decide to work with Blockstream? 
Right. So, well, um, you know, so first I started, like you mentioned, um, you know, I was working for as a consultant for for um, the, you know, uh, governmental um, services in Shanghai. So I'm, I'm Norwegian. So um, I worked for the Norwegian ah. Consulate General there, you know, for the commercial section. I was, you know, on, on the business side, helping Norwegian companies um, come to, to, to China and to Shanghai, do market mm-hmm. research, be sort of the connecting mm-hmm. link between China and Norway. Mm-hmm. um and uh, you know and that's really cool because it's you know it's it's um it's very interesting to me that's why also i moved to shanghai you know it's it's an adventure it's the new wild west it's the wild east you know where all the opportunities are for an entrepreneur i moved there because i thought that oh, my that's amazing like i have to go to china mm-hmm. this is the new thing mm-hmm. so so and then i worked for the government there uh so even though it's kind of cool it was it was commercial it was like uh consulting oriented and stuff like that yeah i was still in the government structure you know and i quickly saw like man like <laughs> how the governments work you know yeah and i you know it, it's like this whole man there's so many like let's not even go into that rabbit hole but but that's a lot of issues there yeah, and, that's a whole different story. I, yeah, exactly. Let's not even go there. Um, mm. Let's focus on the positive side of the solution, which is crypto. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, I, I, you know, and again, like when you go into the rabbit hole, you, you kind of get more and more into it. You'll get more and more passionate. The more you read, the more you interested you are and then at some point i thought man like okay so i worked for the government i also had my own company that i was running mm. so i had like those mm. two things that i was doing and then i, I found crypto and, and bitcoin i thought man this is this is much more important you know i have to i have to dedicate myself to this mm. and so i applied for for a job at the btcc btc china which mm-hmm. was one of the three mm-hmm. big exchanges in, in, in china mm. uh, and um that's how it started basically and now blockstream right so and now blockstream Yes. So like the reason I think the question is, well, like, why did I, you know, how, mm. what, what led me to Blockstream and why Blockstream now? Um, right. I also worked for another company called Ballet, which is a crypto um, um, company that uh, that uh, develops uh, and sells uh, physical hardware wallets. Um, that was Bobby mm-hmm. Lee. He was the CEO, co-founder of BTC China as well. So I was, uh, you know, I was helping him to set up that company. And I transitioned to Blockstream because, um, you know, like, I think it's all about the people um, and and sort of how they think and what they do. And if you look at the, look at the crypto space, um, and you look at all the different companies, and there's so many different companies now that are doing different things. Mm-hmm. But I I I, I want to help Bitcoin. I want to help Bitcoin succeed. That's mm-hmm. for me important. And so if, mm-hmm. if I look at all the different companies in the crypto space, you know, Blockstream I think really sticks out for many reasons. Mm-hmm. So the first reason is being is being the people. I mean, there's there's, you know, legends. Obviously, you have Adam Back, which is, you right. know, like legendary, you know, cypherpunk. Right. Yeah, speaks like for deep, itself. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, he, his philosophy is, I think, is very important to me, like the morals. Mm. And mm. they're in it for Bitcoin. You know, they're really trying to do the hard work that other people may not want to do. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have other people like, you know, uh, Gregory Maxwell. Uh, he doesn't work for anymore. He used to be the CTO. Peter Woolley. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Andrew Polstra, Christian Becker, you know, all these people. And Samson, mm-hmm. I used to work with Samson Mao at BTCC as well. So, you know, he was working as the CSO there. And um, so, so number one is the people, you know, I really wanted to, well, first of all, it's, it's the, you know, how I want to dedicate my time and energy, you know, to help Bitcoin. Where can I right. best do that? So for me, that was Blockstream right. because of right. the people there and the morals, their, their alignment to, 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 to the Bitcoin ethos and also what they're developing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you look at the products that Blockstream have, it you know it's it's really it's you know it's it's pretty insane. Yeah, well, actually, t- talk to us about that. So Blockstream's focus is well, one of is the development of the Bitcoin network, just like what you've alluded to. Um, yeah, talk to us more about that. 
yeah so so i think you know a lot of um a lot of companies in the crypto space they they sort of uh, um use the bitcoin network you know they see mm-hmm. it as, as a sort of a finished product and they 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 plug into it and they they just sort of um use or exploit it uh, not exploit in a negative way and just saying like they're you know they're they're bitcoin exchanges um they build tech but they're not necessarily sort of promoting the infrastructure of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is a network. I mean, Bitcoin is two things. It's it's the it's token and then it's a network. Mm-hmm. So so Blockstream, I think, really sticks out because they're a, and they also call themselves a Bitcoin infrastructure company. So they're Bitcoin, Blockstream is really trying to improve the network of Bitcoin to make it better. You know, mm-hmm. to do the hard mm-hmm. lifting. You know, to build the roads, um, not sure. just use the roads. You know, mm-hmm. so so I think that that's the first thing that sticks out. So some of the products that they do, and also number two, like they're a conglomerate, meaning they're in in some of the different sectors of the industry. You know. So what else? What else can you take us through? Well, there is um, there is something called um, uh, blockchain data services, mm-hmm. or also called the cryptocurrency data feed, which is um, it's a partnership between Blockstream and and ICE. ICE is ICE is um, an acronym for Inter- Intercontinental Exchange. So they're like mm-hmm. a leading provider to a tr- a traditional finance. Um, and so they actually own and operate um, 12 exchanges globally, including the New York Stock Exchange. Um, okay. And so they have data services where, you know, like they provide um, institutions with, with, with financial data. And uh, traditionally, mm-hmm. they have not uh, given access, you know, have had any cryptocurrency products. But mm-hmm. we, I think it was 2018. I mean, I've just been with Blockstream for about two months. So I don't know all the history. Sure, sure, sure. 2018, uh, where basically Blockstream, we, we, we take data from cryptocurrency uh, data from multiple sources, exchanges. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we clean up, process, and analyze this data. And then mm-hmm. we, we send it to, to ICE. And then they uh, will then um, give that data to their institutional clients. So it's basically, it's like, you know, basically like um, providing uh, reliable crypto data to institutions that need reliable data. Because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, in the, in the crypto world, you know, you have a lot of different exchanges. So so what are the prices, you know, like how to figure out what is the, the true price of Bitcoin at any time? You know, there's a lot of exchanges, right. there's a lot of... Right. Yeah, a lot of a lot of things going on there. Uh, what is real volume? What is fake? And like so, so blockchain is sort of helping to to you know bring. So this is definitely yeah. This is more yeah. transparent. What else within the blockstream ecosystem? In I guess within the mining topic. Um, yeah. What about what about what about renewables? Um, are yeah. you then renewable energy? Are you in this? Are you following it? Are you implementing it? How do you yes. stand with that? Absolutely. So, I mean, let me uh, let me answer that question. But first, let me sort of take a step back and then sort of say a little more or what we're doing. So, so mentioned sure. before, mining. That's one thing. We also mm-hmm. do minor hosting, also called colocation mm-hmm. services. So, mm-hmm. so, so basically, so imagine you know if if you want to get exposure to Bitcoin mining, you know, it's fairly complicated because you have to. You have to know number one. You have to understand the miners, the, the hardware. You know, which miner do you mm-hmm. buy? Which is most efficient? And mm-hmm. you, you should buy at scale. You know, the more you buy, the better. So, so there are economies of scale by by mining Bitcoin. You should also mm-hmm. have connections that helps. You know, to the the producers. You should have fast delivery, so it doesn't. You know, so, so basically, from when you buy the miners to when you receive the miners and plug them in, it should be fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should have cheap electricity. You should have a stable electricity supply. 
you just have a safe facility where you store them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, there's maintenance involved. There's upgrading. If a miner fails, you have to repair it. You have to have the software to run it. Um, do you join a mining pool? You know, there's all these different things. So, so, so to to really get exposure to to fixed income of mining, the mining revenue, it's it's very complicated. Um, mm -hmm. So we have uh, miner hosting, collocation services, where we basically provide reliable infrastructure, secure facilities and a software management platform. So mm. you just, wow. you know, you, we either can help even help you buy miners or you can just, you know, send your miners to us and then we'll plug them in. You'll, ha you'll get our software, everything. That's um, a great system. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it sort of helps more people to get into mining without be, having right. to be an expert in all these different things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that's another thing we do. Uh, we also have a new product called um, Modular Mining Unit or MMU. Okay. Um, so this is this is basically um, you know let's say you um, you you operate and run a power plant mm -hmm. uh, or a facility where you basically uh, you're in the business of, of generating energy and supply electricity to to the to the grid. Um, mm -hmm. So the there it, you know obviously this is difficult. There are issues involved in that as well because you're uh, if you run. Um, let's say renewable energy, like you do, you do wind or hydro, stuff like that, mm -hmm. um, or solar, your, your energy production is not constant because it depends on nature. Sure. Right? Sure. And also the, the grid demand is also um, not constant. So there, mm -hmm. there will be times when you have, let's say you have too much electricity produced or too mm -hmm. little. Of course. So there's, and, and times when you have too much energy produced, you have excess energy electricity production versus the demand right. so what you can do then you could either store it you know which right. i guess which what tesla's doing with the power walls you know like you know or you could just waste it which a, a lot of um power companies they do simply. right it's, that's always been you know, a problem right exactly mm. uh, or now with bitcoin you could convert the ele electrical energy into monetary energy you know you can just convert it to money which hasn't been possible before. Like Bitcoin, no. you plug a Bitcoin miner in and you literally convert electrical energy to monetary energy. You know, it's, it's like, for me, it's like, um, if you imagine that you have, um, you, 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 you suffer a wound, you know, you cut your finger on a, with a knife or something like that and you start okay. to bleed. Yeah. So there's yeah. a, there's a leak, you know, blood is running out. So what do you right. do? You put a bandaid on and, of and course. The, human, the body even you know the bloody coagulates mm -hmm. it wants to 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 clog the leak and and if you have a power plant that produces too much energy it's it's like a leak you know you have all this energy that's leaking out so you, you take right. a bitcoin miner kind of like the um, analogy of the of the band-aid and you you plug the bitcoin miner into the energy and you fix the leak and you convert that wasted energy into money and that also also helps the overall financial finances of the power plant you know sometimes if you want to set up um you want to set up let's say a renewable fast about renewable energy um mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and stuff like that and we also have a project there actually that we're doing with square but let's say you're you know you're setting up um a power plants um let's say renewable because that's you know that's important that now that we move to sustainable energy production of course of course um then you know it, so yeah. you set up a power plant 
Mm-hmm. And then you have to figure out the PL and the finances, you know, because you have to have investors and you have to show a positive ROI over the next X years. Sure. And if you have a Bitcoin miner as an as an added, let's say, product, it it could help to to overall increase the overall profitability of the renewable energy farm, which helps people to build more renewable energy farms because it's 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 an added way to earn more money to increase the revenue and profitability so bitcoin will help um to facilitate and to and for more renewable energy facilities to be built so many interesting topics i mean great products that you speak of with blockstream um you did just start your path there but i wish you all the best and, and and good luck and thank you so so much for your time and like i said i hope to to see you back soon or hear from you back thank soon. you so, Thanks, Ivar. So with us today, we have Vanina Ivanova, the Chief Marketing Officer at Ambire. Am I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. Um, formerly the Adex Network. In Vanina's career, she has managed marketing and communications projects for various industries. Her work in the fintech industry led her to blockchain and decentralized technology which she happily embraced. And for the past five years, she has been running the marketing of Ambire Adex and now of Ambire Wallet as well. Her team has the hard task of translating crypto to everyday language and communicating with both crypto native and non-crypto audiences. Welcome Vanina to Blockchain Recorded Podcast. Thank you for having me, Nina. It's a real pleasure to be a guest on your podcast. Thank you. But let me also um, mention, you've changed the name correctly from Adex, which was the name previously you you added, Ambire, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, um, there's a little bit of backstory that I need to uh, to tell you to understand why we rebranded. Um, when we started back in 2016, we were working on a video streaming platform uh, that was gaining a lot of traction and we wanted to monetize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this uh, video streaming hub called Streamio, um, for it, we tried a, a few different ad networks and they all um, underperformed. They didn't really meet our expectations. Mm-hmm. And we tried another one and another one and another one. And at, and at one point, we decided that this is not working for us and we can just create our own ad network. So this mm-hmm. is how the idea of Adex Network was born. This is this is our origin story. And back then, Adex Network worked really well because Adex comes from Ad Exchange, and this is what we were building. Mm-hmm. Uh, five five years into this adventure, we already we have already built our ad platform, and it has about seventeen thousand registered uh, corporate users, which mm-hmm. is great. And the platform is not a baby anymore. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's in preschool now. So it's <laughs> has its own life <laughs> uh, and and it requires a lot less attention from uh, from our side uh, so that led us to another problem that we were facing and that was using different crypto wallets that again they didn't underperform but they didn't match our expectations in terms of UX they were confusing they were uh, complicated and necessarily complicated and we're crypto native people and we thought imagine if a non-crypto person has to deal with a with a wallet that is talking about nonces and gas limits and people have no idea what is that and 
and why mm. they shouldn't touch one thing or they should adjust uh, the other thing. Mm -hmm. So that's how we decided to uh, take uh, a bit of the technology that we already have uh, and reuse it and repurpose it uh, to create a new product, which is a DeFi-centered cryptocurrency wallet. Mm -hmm. And once we decided doing that and started working on the wallet, that it was initially going to be called the Addicts Wallet because we had the brand recognition mm -hmm. with Addicts Network. Mm -hmm. But it was confusing because we were working on the on the actual product. We hadn't redone our website. We had a page on the website for the wallet, but it was confusing. We were telling people that we're building a wallet, leading them to a website of a mm -hmm. ad of an ad uh, network. Um, so at one point, we decided that it was time to rebrand and to kind of come up with a new brand that would encapsulate what we actually do mm -hmm. and be able to host all of the products that we create under the same hood because I'm sure that the wallet is not going to be the last thing that we do we're of just course. beginning <laughs> mm -hmm. you're in preschool so, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so that's how that's how we came up uh, with the idea of the rebranding and that's why we decided to go ahead and mm -hmm. rebrand to Ambire uh, mm -hmm. and that's actually I mean it doesn't the, the word Ambire doesn't mean anything in English but it's a, an Italian verb that means mm -hmm. to aspire to want mm -hmm. more uh, mm -hmm. and that's what we do that's what we do so we figured it was really really fitting to our dna to, to our company dna and um that's that's why today we have uh Ambire as a company and then under the hood we have Ambire addicts the ad mm -hmm. network and Ambire wallet that will be released super soon uh, for the general public it's now in private better Oh, that's exciting. Well, we'll definitely get to that. So as given what you've said so far, I take it you've been in this space for a long time. Well, when it's in blockchain, um, in blockchain speak, that's like decades, probably. <laughs> but I was wondering if I could get your take on the evolution of the crypto and blockchain industry sort of for the past couple of years, what what they meant for you? Well, um, if I have to sum it up um, in, in one phrase, the past few years have been uh, a roller coaster for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Emotional, <laughs> technological, um, business roller coaster, if you wish. Mm -hmm. um, because as, as you know, things develop so quickly. Uh, there are literally new products and new paradigms coming up overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, things that didn't exist the previous day and we need to get acquainted with and learn the next day mm -hmm. uh, to stay, you know, to stay on top of things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the past few years have been insane. I first heard of cryptocurrency back in, I think, 2013. And mm -hmm. back then there was just Bitcoin, Litecoin and Dogecoin. That was it. Mm -hmm. And all also, um, back then I was working in the fintech industry and I only considered them from an economical perspective, from a financial perspective. I never mm -hmm. really uh, got into, into the technological part. Mm -hmm. But then we weren't talking about blockchain. Nobody had heard about blockchain. Right. And then just a mere three years later, blockchain was blowing out. It was mm -hmm. beginning to get so big with Ethereum and smart contracts and the ability to create your own DAP relatively mm -hmm. easily. Um, and that's when we got into that game. That's that's when, when we started working on Addicts Network and things changed so much. I, I still sometimes revisit our very first version of the white paper of Addicts Network. <laughs> and I and I read things and I'm like, oh my God, that seems so stupid. Why why did we go that way? <laughs> You're and probably not remember, the only one. <laughs> yeah. And then I remember, oh yeah, we did we went that way 
Yeah. Because the other technology didn't exist yet. The right. other protocol didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how incredibly fast-paced the industry has been. Um, and and I, as a part of that industry, I have... Uh, I have felt every little bit of it in terms of informational overload, in terms mm-hmm. of excitement for new technology, um, in terms of ideas of what we can do with, with mm-hmm. blockchain. So uh, these have been a, a few very, very exciting years for me. 2017 was sort of the the ICO era. And in terms of crypto and blockchain and marketing, a lot was promised in 2017, uh, just with all the different industries. So where do you think you are now in terms of, you said you were in preschool era, <laughs> but, but um, where do you think you are in this um, sort of solution track? Well, um, I think that we are so much, I know it's going to probably, it's probably going to sound a little bit arrogant, but we are so far ahead than Mm. we were five years ago um, that it's unbelievable. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, at our company, at our team, I'm looking at myself and, and trying it. It's unfathomable how much we've learned, uh, and how much we've created during those, those past years. Um, because as you said, 2016, 2017, the golden age of ICOs, a lot was Mm. promised, uh, Mm -hmm. and very little was delivered, sadly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, the reason, one of the reasons for that was that, um, some teams just didn't follow through. Uh, other teams lost their funding in the crypto winter that followed shortly after that. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't they couldn't go on. Um, but our team persevered, and uh, today we like to joke that we're one of the OGs in crypto. <laughs> um, but the joke the joke aside, and I can say that, and I don't you know even even if it does sound arrogant, uh, I'm super proud to work with these people. But our team and our team is one of the most uh, competent teams in crypto today, mm. in terms of in terms of understanding uh, the blockchain technology, in terms of understanding Ethereum and smart contracts and alternative chains. Um, the the umbire team is incredible and the learning process is ongoing with us so there hasn't been a time when we've stopped even for a second to Mm. like take a breath if you wish it has been an ongoing um i'll say grind but i don't mean it in a negative uh, Mm. in the negative Mm. connotation like it has Mm. been very exciting for us to learn and develop and acquire these new skills that we have today Mm -hmm. so how many how many devs do you have? How big is your team? Um, the team right now is uh, about twenty people. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sh- to be honest. I'm not sure how many of them are devs. I, I would need to count, but uh, approximately half of them are developers, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and okay. then uh, the other half are uh, marketing, sales, uh, customer support, and administrative uh, mm-hmm. professionals. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, we're just a yeah. yeah, just a handful of people doing incredible things. <laughs> um, and if you if yeah. you don't mind me, another thing that I would like no, to mention no. here, and I think that's important uh, to kind of like um, you know to, to finish answering the question where we are today. The core yes. team of Adex Network, the you know the people who began uh, Adex Network in 2016, in 2016 is the same team that we have today. We have just been adding oh. people, and nobody has left, oh, which is good for yes. You. I know Good that's for incredible. You. So that that's why I like to brag about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's 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 pretty incredible. 
That's pretty incredible. So you definitely are the OG in all different, um, and with in all respects. Well, let me so let me take now a step further. I actually did glance at your white paper, and so you actually have a sentence. So you have you say that the protocol that Adex puts forth combines traditional peer-to-peer technology, cryptography, and blockchain. So mm-hmm. clearly you see a blockchain as a solution to what you deem or to the problem that you actually de- defined before. Um, can you actually take us through what that means with respect to marketing um, or ad solutions and actually how do you use blockchain? Well, um, when we when we first started using blockchain, we thought that, um, you know, we had a different idea. But again, the technology was not mature enough. So things mm. have changed a lot uh, in the past in the past few years. Uh, but the one solution that uh, I think is most valuable um, for the um, for the ad tech industry is our outpace solution that basically uh, allows micropayments on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And each impression on our ad network is a micropayment. So uh, publishers get paid per impression. And because mm-hmm. it's a payment on Ethereum, it's written on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're batched for uh, for optimization, but they're all written on the on the blockchain. And that allows uh, 100% traceability and, and that allows both publishers and advertisers to verify that yes this is the number of impressions that they got this is the number of clicks that they got this is the money that they pay uh, paid for their advertising campaign so basically we're using the blockchain to bring in that to, to bring back that transparency that the ad tech industry has lost in time mm-hmm. and to make sure that everyone has a a uh, an independent way to track their advertising budgets or track their their advertising net revenues so uh, i think that's the that's the biggest contribution um that we've made to the space mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so far um uh, and then um on the the other hand we also use contextual targeting which means that the ads that are broadcast on a particular uh, website are matched to the topic uh, of that website so okay. the user doesn't get profiled the end user we collect zero data about the end user okay that was one of my questions you collect <laughs> yeah. zero data how so, okay okay so can, can so you can can, can the marketing sorry can, can but can the ad industry you know we're all used to just we all just know that you know the ad industry collects all of our data can can the ad industry survive without that it can in the long term it can if, yeah if, if you want uh, to systematically change it right I mean when you think about it that was that was the way we yes. we had ads uh, I don't know ten years ago and we mm-hmm. were doing fine. <laughs> right, we were, right we were doing just fine so mm. i think it is a sustainable mo- uh, model uh it is not ideal in the sense of uh in the sense that it provides a targeting that is not so precise but again it protects user privacy it gives us back the power to say i don't want you to track me i don't want you to know what my purchasing habits are mm-hmm. i don't want you to intrude my personal life mm-hmm. um at that level so mm-hmm. yes, it is possible because I'm not being profiled, uh, and the platform doesn't know that I have already seen this ad uh, mm-hmm. on uh, this site today. It may show me the same ad on another on another site, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it will not targeting target me as precisely. 
but it's a way to go and i think that it's a very healthy way to go uh in order to uh bring back ethics to the space and and make sure mm -hmm. that people are not being not being profiled because the way it works basically is say you are on uh, a website about cars and you're reading about cars mm -hmm. and then the ads that you will see on that site with um with uh, uh contextual advertising would be ads for i don't know car parts or car dealerships or car washes if you wish so you have a little bit of um of uh, variety uh mm -hmm. with a type of with that type of targeting it's really not as precise as profiling mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's not intrusive. It's not invasive. Mm. And I think that at the end of the day, uh, yeah, it's not ideal for advertisers, but that's what people want. Right. And at the end of the day, I think that is what will prevail. Right. It, it should. And you mentioned you're also involved in the wallet. So you have your Ambire Addicts wallet. Is that is that what it's called? Or it, this uh, is it's just Ambire wallet. Yeah. Ambire um, wallet. Okay. Ambar Wallet is something that I am so, so excited about. <laughs> I literally, all of my, my, my friends don't want to hang out with me anymore because that's all I talk about. That's all you talk about. Um, <laughs> Ambar Wallet. Yeah, as I said, we noticed a problem and the problem is that uh, we want to use, we, we use crypto a lot. We use crypto mm -hmm. a lot. We use DeFi mm -hmm. protocols. And these mm -hmm. are complex. Even for us, they're complicated. Mm -hmm. We don't always get it. How mm -hmm. does this thing work? How does that thing work? Mm -hmm. And we, we want to be able to use more and more of these. But it gets frustrating at one point. So that's how, you know, that's how we decided to to uh, create a, a new wallet that will make things easy and that we will kind of like get everything under the same hood. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we came up with the with the concept of Ambar Wallet. Right now we are in in um, private beta and I've mm -hmm. had my hand, my greedy hands on, mm -hmm. on that wallet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for uh uh for some time now uh and uh, let me tell you it's glorious <laughs> if i may <laughs> if i may say so myself uh it's <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a lovely wallet that would allow people to first of all to log in with the username and password mm -hmm. while mm -hmm. providing you the necessary security uh, to be protected and to have your crypto assets safe but you can mm -hmm. still log in with a username and a password and that means that you can log in from any device uh, and it doesn't have to be web3 enabled and it doesn't have mm -hmm. to have a browser extension or whatever because you know I still find myself struggling with MetaMask on mobile devices for example mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. other wallets on, on mobile devices mm -hmm. uh, and you can't even connect a hardware wallet to, to a mobile device uh, mm -hmm. then again with Ambar Wallet, you'll be able to log in with an email and password. But if you want, you can connect a MetaMask address to it, or you can uh, you can connect the hardware wallet, which will give you an additional layer of security mm. uh, for your uh, for your transactions and and for your uh, assets. It will allow you to tap into different protocols uh, from DeFi with one click, literally with one click. The other day, I put some money into Aave with mm -hmm. one click. Oh, and it was really. I, 
it was amazing. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was so excited to be able to do that because we have already integrated that. And we're, later on, we're going to integrate more, um, more protocols, more DeFi protocols like Compound and Earn. Um, mm. And you can easily transact. You can switch between networks again with a single click. And it happens uh, just so quickly and so uh, flawlessly. And, and the most important thing about Ambar Wallet is that we have really, really focused on user experience and the user mm -hmm. journey because we mm -hmm. want to make things. There are so many complexities that are being associated with, with having a, a crypto wallet. But we're getting this and handling it under the hood. So on top of that, people have a, a really seamless experience and it's really easy for them. We allow transactions batching. We eliminate Ethereum approvals, you know, all mm. these things that are complicated and confusing for, for even for crypto native people, let alone non-crypto people. We want mm. to have a, a wallet. Basically, I mean, that's my, you know, I, I'm speaking from my personal experience here, mm -hmm, but I think mm -hmm. that also goes uh, for the rest of the team. We want to we want to have a, a wallet that we can give to our parents. Yeah, um, and and yeah. they can use it without calling us ten times an hour to ask what is this and what is that. <laughs> of course, or just to be able, I think um, that's that's exactly what what the problem is in general. You know, making it. I, I think the first hurdle is trust, right? Yes. Um, it, for this for that generation to to start um, also interacting in, in the space, um, I think a lot of our, well, the generation of my parents, baby boomer generation, I think they, like you said, user experience, um, ease of use. Um, so it's intuitive, but I think the biggest thing is trust and privacy and safety. Right. Exactly. I've um, had this I conversation. People, people are still, I think people are still wary of, I'll be honest, even for myself to have a mobile wallet. I understand and where you're coming from. And yeah, I, I went through that as well. Now, to be honest, today, I'm very comfortable with, with using mm. mobile wallets as well. Um, uh, because I know where the, uh, um, you know, where I can be potentially vulnerable. So mm. I can protect myself. Uh, mm. But again, you know, for a regular person, you can't expect them to go through this learning curve. You can't expect people to get a degree in cybersecurity just so that they can use a crypto <laughs> wallet on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all kind of had to do that it's, but yeah it's insane and and yeah. that's also a communication problem a communications yes. problem i've yeah. had this conversation with my own mother who's a university professor in mm. her late in her late 60s Mm, wow. So she's curious about crypto. She wants mm -hmm. to invest in crypto. She wants mm -hmm. to, you know, to look into that, to play with it a mm -hmm. little bit. But I don't, you know, I don't let her because it's too confusing. And I know my mom and I know that, you know, where she can mess up things. And I know how easily she can lose her assets if, if she mm. uses uh, an existing solution. So that's why, you know, I'm waiting for Ambar Wallet to be released uh, for everyone so that I can onboard my mom. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but but when, when, uh, when we uh, speak about crypto, she she tells me she's confused and it sounds too complex and she's too old for this and i'm like no no you're not too old nobody's too old or too young for this obviously mm -hmm. no you don't not. need to understand the technology yeah the, the technology behind it is really com complex and it's confusing mm -hmm. but you don't need to understand it you need to have a tool that lets you uh transact without having to understand that and mm -hmm. i think that this is what we're doing because if you think about it uh not so long ago credit cards were not a thing and people didn't understand and didn't use credit cards 
cards and today mm. uh, again my mom would take out her credit card in any store and pay for her groceries or pay for a plane ticket or whatever with her mm -hmm. credit card and and she feels feels comfortable with that she trusts it exactly you know the the question uh, the, the the matter of trust she trusts the credit card and she feels like she understands it and i'm like okay that's not the case here really let's talk about it do you actually know how credit cards work. Do you know what a payment processor is? Do you know what a bin sponsor is? Do you know, you know, how transactions get routed and, and approved? Um, what's the risk management pr procedure for every credit card transaction? And this is where mm -hmm. you you have these few seconds of silence and, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and my mom goes, oh, right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. we need to, I think this is what we need to overcome uh, in terms of communicating blockchain to people in terms of you know that and that communication sure. goes through ux and through user journeys that are uh, simple and easy to understand i would like uh, to leave one message uh, with mm. with the audience of the podcast it would be um tell your friends about blockchain Ten tell your non-crypto friends about crypto uh, mm -hmm. and try to get people excited because uh we are obviously we're all fighting for mass adoption and mass adoption is slow mm -hmm. and it's slow because blockchain is slow and because gas mm -hmm. fees are high mm -hmm. and because people are afraid of blockchain and it sounds big and scary and complex talk mm -hmm. to your friends about about crypto and try to educate as many people as possible um look into the the all the positives that blockchain and crypto have empowering the unbanked and allowing people to get their privacy in their own hands and we'll get there maybe slower than we expected but we will get there well thank you thanks for that we'll definitely we'll uh, love to hear how your progress is going and maybe hope to have you soon on again maybe one of your colleagues or you and um yeah we'll hopefully speak with you again soon indeed thank you for having me nina so today we have with us Mitya Simcic, the co-founder and CTO at Global ID, as well as Greg Kidd, also the co-founder and CEO at Global ID. Uh, Greg, Mitya, welcome to Blockchain Recorded. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Great. Thanks to you. Can you each maybe introduce yourselves and give us a short bio? I can let you decide sure. whoever wants to go first. Sure, I'll, I'll go first. My name is Mitya. Originally, I'm from Slovenia, mm. and my background is computer science. I also did the MBA. I was kind of always fond of the internet. I started in the very early 90s when I was still a kid, mm. built my first computer together, and then that kind of led me to found my first startup when I was 22 and kind of never looked back from the entrepreneurial kind of world. And then approximately eight years ago, I got the opportunity to move to US and I chose Silicon Valley. Uh, started to work with, with some big companies there and uh, along the way I met Greg uh, and a couple of years later he introduced to me this idea of Global ID and how we need to kind of change the world and then how, how the world's broken and the more we talked about it the more I was intrigued by the idea and then soon after we kind of co-founded Global ID. Did I actually just to to take a few steps back? Did you build your computer and then when you were young in the nineties? Did I understand that correctly? I mean, yeah, I I just bought bought the components and kind of oh, the components it together. And yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, Greg, can we hear about you? Sure. I, I grew up on the East Coast, went to school on the East Coast, went to work at Booz Allen. Mm -hmm. uh, I was involved with the telecom DREG, some financial services DREG. Started my own company actually on the Bike Messenger. 
industry. We learned a lot about text messaging and uh, payments that spread throughout the world, went public. But importantly, Jack Dorsey was very interested in dispatch, hacked into that. I hired him. And so we lived together a couple of times on and off. And therefore, I was lucky enough to be with him when he started Twitter. Um, so I was a early uh just very early in there, both as an investor and did some work there. And same for Square. I had taken some time off to work at the Federal Reserve in the payments group, where we run the, the ACH and the wire system for the United States. And so I got that regulatory perspective as well and continued to work in regulatory advisory work when I moved back out to Silicon Valley, but also moonlighted. And after Twitter and Square was involved in startups like Coinbase and Ripple, where I was the uh, chief risk officer, so got involved in the uh, in the crypto industry and remained interested in what forms of digital identity would work with these new technologies. And so the genesis of uh, Global ID was to create a form of self-sovereign portable identity where your identity could be used again and again in a privacy-preserving yet secure way um, and teamed up with Mitya and the team in Slovenia to build that that infrastructure all the time while continuing to invest through our investment company, Hard Yaka, which, which now includes a portfolio of approximately 200, 200 companies all around all around the world. That brings me up to today. Wow, that's a very rich background. And how was working with Jack Dorsey? That must have been interesting that w those were maybe his first steps. Well, Jack was great at, at teaching me about new technology. So, for mm -hmm. instance, I learned about Java mm -hmm. from, from Jack, but he was always a very uh, simple and deliberate thinker. And so it was critical to see him take what we built for the bike messenger industry, mm -hmm. which was 140 characters and text messaging and strip that down and generalize it for Twitter. So I'm grateful for the chance to see Jack's uh, simplifying uh, methodologies, which you know was critical for the formation of Twitter and also keeping Square and Square Cash really simple. And, and that's been a big part of its success. So, so Jack's always been good and better than I at making things simple. Uh, mm. and I'll continue to find that to be like uh, a guidepost for me going forward, hopefully mm -hmm. for Global ID as well. So it sounds like you have a, a, a very keen eye for also the regulatory aspect for the crypto space, given your background. We do have a keen eye for the regulatory aspect. Some of the firms we've been involved with have been in some of the disputes like Ripple with uh, mm. the SEC. Um, mm. And there are uh, ongoing uh, licensing issues and also ongoing legal issues we've had with who who owns the data. Does Facebook own your data because right. it's the servers or do you own your data? And so we have been involved in what we would call the the, the reg tech industry mm -hmm. as well, which involves sometimes uh, litigating to clarify rights about things to do with crypto or things to do with data. Um, and so that's been a big, big part of our effort as well, not only writing software, but also clarifying legal precedents around these new technologies. Mm -hmm. um, maybe Mitya, what brought you to the decentralized world? And when did you actually discover that blockchain tech would be suitable for fixing or dealing with digital identity? It's kind of like a funny story. Um, we were working on one of our startups and we were deciding what the next idea should be. And one of the ideas was, was actually, hey, we should maybe mine the Bitcoin. Um, and that was very early on. That was like 2011. And at the time, I mean, the developers came to me and said, oh, why shouldn't we just mine the Bitcoin? That's going to be a good thing. And I was, <laughs> it, it was just too risky for me at the time. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of said, ah, no, no, we'll, we'll let it, we'll pass this one and, and work on something more tangible. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then when I moved to US, that was when the first crypto boom happened. But that was when the Bitcoin price went over a thousand dollars. I started to kind of put more thought into it and I started learning more about the technologies and so on. And actually, the first project Greg and I did together was uh, a web wallet, a web XRP wallet. So uh, and and that actually got me really close to uh, all the different uh, protocols and and different things. So I, I got really deep into it and then when the identity came it was it was kind of like a natural uh, the blockchain was kind of like a natural um you know solution for it because it, it belongs to the people it doesn't belong to anybody that there's no central sure. authority mm-hmm. and things like that so that that's where kind of like the deeper dive happened that was 2016 2017 and yeah and never looked back from there maybe if one of you can take us through its evolution with web 1.0 web 2.0 and now with web 3.0 what does that mean and how it's progressed sure i I mean i think i can feel that one so i think a big event in in digital identity happened over 10 years ago with the creation of oauth by uh, it was actually by twitter which created a a way that you could use your twitter identity to log into other sites and and log into other sites in a way that those other sites wouldn't actually get your credentials. They would just get a token. Mm-hmm. And so it was the beginning of, of having the identity of one site be usable at other sites. And then Facebook did Facebook Connect. And, and those two social media sites became popular login methods for, for other sites. And so that began to, to address the issue of portability. It was still Twitter and Facebook owning your identity, but at least you could make it make it reusable. And, you know, with Google and Apple joining in on that, people got pretty used to seeing those three or four different login options at many, many websites. But as we learned from the Cambridge Analytica scandal, the, the cost of all that was those sites had your identity information, and they weren't too circumspect with keeping that private. They were willing to resell your data and use it for advertising purposes. And so you became their product, even though you weren't paying for their their services. And so that has at various times been annoying to problematic in terms of it being used to like target people to tip elections and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. while that form of portable identity uh, works, it's controlled by, you know, the four four big major tech companies in the in the search and identity space. And so the question is, what's the alternative to that? Uh, and, and that's really where self-sovereignty comes in. And right now, there still isn't an overall competing protocol that's accepted globally, where you could expect when you, you go to a site, you're still expecting to see you know an option, mostly from Facebook and, and Google and sometimes Apple, but really Facebook and Google have become the, uh, the dominant players. But it was Twitter that originally came up with OAuth and OAuth too. Mm-hmm. Mitch, did you want to add anything in on that? No, that was perfect. I mean, maybe just a small anecdote in Web 1 sphere. When I remember back in the 90s, we used things like BBS bulletin board systems and then the IRC chat came along and so on. So it, it was funny because we, even though everybody was completely anonymous, I knew half of the people there. So it was it was great for Web 1. But now that pretty much the whole humanity is on, online, it's it's we need something else. And, and the self-sovereignty is what we think the answer to this. Mm-hmm. And Greg, before you also mentioned a, a key key word, credentials. Can you maybe unpack that? What, sure. What had, a credential. What had, yep. Yeah. Keep going. So you can almost think of a credential as, as like uh, if you went on an Easter egg hunt and you collected a bunch of badges and the badge might be like a proof that you control a certain phone number or that mm-hmm. you match a photo on a certain government ID mm-hmm. or that you log into a financial account or a social network 
or even PACS like a CAPTCHA or a liveness test. Each of these proofs is a statement that at such and such a time, you did or you could prove such and such to another party. And if you write that down in a cryptographically secure way, it's a credential, or you can think of it like a badge. And it might be that, hey, I can fly a helicopter, or hey, I really did graduate from that university, mm-hmm. or I really do collect this phone number. And you can collect those proofs and share them or display them publicly without revealing the underlying information. So people know that you've passed a certain level of proofs, but they don't get to know the underlying information unless you really want to share that with them. And in many situations, having those credentials, those proofs is enough to get you permission to act because you're always relying on some other party to trust your identity and the credentials about it to make a decision whether to board this airplane or whether to process this payment. Those are all based on on some level of trust. And the question is, how can you earn and share trust or convey it without actually having to reveal personally identifiable private information. Mm-hmm. So credentials is a is a short phrase for for encapsulating that in a standard logic that we can we can cart around just like we have could wear like buttons on our jacket to, to tell people that we you know we belong to a certain club or have achieved a certain level of competence. What are the differences in digital identity for individuals, for private individuals versus companies? Or are there differences? Sure. So so companies they they have different credentials as well. So lots of companies, especially in regulated industries, have a license. And, and that's perhaps the, the most important credential that they, they have. But they have other credentials too, like that they've received incorporation, and they can also prove that they control particular bank accounts or other credentials as well. So they call talk about know your customer, KYC, but there's also KYB, know your business as well. So mm-hmm. both people and organizations, including DAOs or LLCs or corporations or really any group, have the same challenge. You know, what's their name? What credentials do they have? And can you trust them? Mm-hmm. Great, thanks. Um, I actually um, I read an article on your Medium blog uh, titled "Every Company Is an Identity Company," um, saying that we've now reached the stage where every company is going to be an identity company, right? Um, what maybe Mitya? I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Maybe you can dive deeper. Yeah. So the way we look at this is that if you look at certain, like stages that that I as a user go through with any service that's out there, it all kind of starts with identity. Mm. So we, we started to use this term internally, like every company is going to be an identity company. And, and we started to use that because also kind of like historical in historical terms, we, we look at the web one was uh, the, the process from going from web one to web two was all about, oh, every company now is going to be an online company. So and in the early 2000s, all of the businesses were kind of shifting online and uh, they were doing not, not just the websites, but they were, they were building services online. And then in kind of like early, I mean, early kind of years of like maybe right after Facebook became known and so on, uh, we, we could say now that every company has become kind of this social company and it was all about finances as well online. And that took us all the way from 2010s. But now in 2020s, we believe that companies are realizing more and more as well as users that their identity is actually the most important thing. And it all kind of starts with identity. That's why we came up with the phrase of every company is an identity company. And that's for sure is going to take us through 2020s. Yeah, definitely. Um, let's let's shift to um, global ID. So, what is global ID, and how has it evolved from your beginnings? So, since your inception, 
um, and what exactly are you aiming to solve? I mean, Mitch, you alluded to it before. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a shot of that. Yes. Uh, so we we've been working on globally for almost six years now, and uh, the vision has always stayed the same. We mm. we started with the vision of hey something needs to change and uh we we want to live in a better kind of internet world online world where we control our own identities when we started we didn't have any uh like the, the, there were no protocols out yet so we came up with our own kind of proprietary protocol that we call attestations and that's exactly what greg talks about uh when he says credentials but it, it has evolved a lot since then we we now are a member of w3c where we're working on a standards called double uh, called verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers so which kind of trying to help push this uh protocols out there so that everybody uses the same protocols and, and if that happens then all of a sudden then it becomes interoperable one of the things along the way that we learned very early on is that identity itself is not gonna do it like we, we cannot build uh kind of like this good app if people are only going to use it for some sort of purpose like only maybe just a login and so on so we 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 kind of added two additional layers on top of that one is communication layer and the other one is value layer mm -hmm. so communication layer is all about exchanging information and value layer is all about exchanging value so and and with those things in mind what the one thing if if we were to describe what global ID kind of solves for is is trust and then the idea is really that down the line when i have build this identity and i put so and so many credentials to it i put so i had so and so many communications with different people and services and i've exchanged so and so much value if we fast forward 20 years from now my identity could be very reputable and maybe there is a world out there in the future where somebody does not have to look at my pii does not have to know my name my date of birth or, or where i'm from or whatever but but it could be enough that they've seen all of the actions that i've done in the past and that could mean that that's enough for for me to get the bank account to to open the doors or anything like that so that, that's kind of like really what we're trying to solve with globality to kind of like this future world of greg likes to call it star trek st star trek world where kind of like everything's kind of like easy and, and the doors just open for you Greg, do do add to that as well that, that's it i mean i would say the one sort of twist that's unique to global id is we push the concept of a namespace, which is that every person, every organization has a unique name and you can have more than one name, but no two people can have the same name. And you just attach all these credentials to that. And if your name has a good enough reputation, you know, you kind of get the Rolls Royce treatment wherever you go without having to like give up a lot of private information. And so it's, it's kind of old fashioned that if you actually build a reputation around a name, you may not have to actually technically share so much information because the other party can simply trust your reputation. So it's a very old fashioned, almost tribal concept, but it could actually operate now at, at global scale. And so we're all in on the namespace. It was the thing that let the World Wide Web make the internet usable by people and by businesses as opposed to just governments and academic institutions. Because when the World Wide Web came along, it had a namespace. You could go to coca-cola.com and you were pretty confident that that was Coca-Cola and you didn't have to know some numerical address. And so just like there was a domain namespace back in the 1990s, we're introducing the idea of an identity namespace here in this uh, in this decade. Um. Greg, did you watch Star Trek? 
<laughs> the fact I would just be before uh, Mitya mentioned that you, you have that vision. Um, does that mean that you were a Trekkie? <laughs> I, I was a Trekkie. And the things that were amazing was, you know, the doors knew how to open for the good guys and stay closed for the bad guys. Everybody in the future seemed to know how to, to buy dilithium <laughs> crystals. Didn't matter whether you were a Romulan or a Cleon or from the Federation. Right. And, uh, and, and all, whenever Kirk landed on a local planet, all the, all the natives all seemed to speak English. So clearly... <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had, had written those episodes. We didn't see them to make all those things, um, all yeah. those things possible. And we we view Global ID's mission is to write those missing missing mm. scenes that that make that simpler future possible. Could I make the claim that Global ID, the Global ID platform, empowers the user to control his or her own information? Absolutely. Yes, but it's not just about rights. It's also about responsibilities because mm, you're yeah. controlling it. But you, know, you can have 100% control. But if you don't share mm. or make that available to other parties that are relying on it, you never get anything because then you're only like living in your own isolation. So, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. the, the world of what doesn't matter whether you're a communist or a capitalist, we live in an exchange society. Mm -hmm. And so whether we're exchanging goods for money or or other other interactions, you're always looking to have a, a trusted interaction with other parties. And so a big part of our infrastructure is how do you build tools to support trusted engagement? And we've all seen how Facebook does it. You have to be a prisoner of the Facebook ecosystem. The question is, how do you do that not trapped within one social media network? How do you do that as a general construct and really, that's the that's the foundational work that Global ID is doing. That's actually that, that's actually one of my questions. How do you do that by not being trapped into I mean, this one one sort of ecosystem? Yeah, Greg, kind of briefly describe the kind of the thinking behind verifiable credentials. Maybe I can provide more of a technical description there as well. So it's it's a three party uh, system that a lot of people call the, the the trust system. So you have issuer, you have a verifier, and you have a holder. And it's very similar to our physical world. I mean, you would go to here in the United States to DMV to get a driver's license. So the DMV kind of issues you a driver's license, which is a verifiable credential. And then you store it in your wallet. And then when you walk around and you need to prove that you're over 21 to buy beer from the store, the mm -hmm. store is the verifier. So the same principle happens here. As Greg mentioned, we use a lot of cryptography and it, it's a standard. Now, there is one key important thing there, which is called a decentralized identifier. And the, is, the easiest way to look at this is it's kind of like a public key that the issuer puts on, on, on the blockchain. And that public key needs to be used. That it needs to be used whenever the verifier is verifying the data. So let's say DMV now issues me a digital credential. Uh, I hold it in my phone and, and it's nowhere else online. So so that, that also kind of plays nicely with, with all of, for example, the Europe's GDPR and, and mm -hmm. US CCPA that we have here in California and so on. So nobody else has that information. And then I choose when I want to share that with, for example, the store, if I want to buy beer or something. And there are actually two good advantages. One is the Greg mentioned selectively sharing the data. So not only I can pick and choose, okay, I'm just going to share date of birth and maybe the picture from that government ID with that, that store so they can check that I'm over 21. There's one other thing that, that's called zero knowledge proofs where I can just share maybe the photo and the zero knowledge proof that I'm over 21. So I, I can even like hide the fact when I was born to the store, but they, they can still be 100% certain that, that I am over 21. And, and maybe just the last bit that did that I mentioned, that's the, the only piece that kind of lives on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. So how do you 
before we greg mentioned the so the, the trusted interaction right this is a trusted interaction how exactly how do you achieve this trusted interaction while providing safety and eliminating interference by a third party such as maybe global id or the government or whoever yeah I mean, this this may be just sort of a layperson's uh, question. You know, this is not my space. I'm tr I'm just trying to understand it more. Yeah. It, so is this is this where blockchain comes in? It, it's a very fair question. Uh, no, it's okay. it's uh, where, where blockchain comes in is the the verifying part. So the verifying. The way part. we achieve this, the way we achieve this is that uh, the way we build global ID is that we don't know anything about you. So that, that that's mm. the thing. So every we 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 act as a cloud. So the closest way to compare this would be for example a lot of you everybody's or a lot of people are using password managers so what happens is the data gets encrypted decrypted on your device itself so maybe mm -hmm. either well, i mean we have the mobile app so it, it happens there with the password managers usually happens on the as an extension in the browser or something and then that data gets just kind of an encrypted version of that data gets sent to the cloud and we just store that. So in case you lose your phone or something, we still have an option to recover your identity and restore it. Uh, but but you, we give you a key and with that key, you control your identity. And that key is only known to you and nobody else, including Global ID. Another thing that, that we're trying to do as much as we can of is the anything that kind of we anything that we store we're trying to keep it as anonymous as possible so even if or or when the hackers are going to hack global id they're going to get the data and then if they brute force the the encrypted data and so on they, they might still get just bits and pieces so, the, so they might get nina they might get greg and mm -hmm. they might get a date of birth but they're not going to know which date of birth goes with with nina or, or greg so th there's a number of things that we're trying to do to kind of make it as um secure as possible but but the bottom line is that your data actually lives on your device which is your mobile phone and that acts as a key to unlock the doors share the pii or do anything else that that, that you want to do okay i'll try to i'll try so to let me, uh, let me just summarize the, the key point on on, on Mitch's piece we he mentioned it but just to emphasize it mm -hmm. is global id is the protocol that allows this all to happen but we don't have the keys to unlock your data mm. so even if the government came and said well i, I really want to see some information about you know about greg or nina we can say well, that's fine but we don't have the keys and so so that's an interesting thing where we can build the protocol and we can operate it from the cloud but that doesn't mean that we ourselves have access to that data so mm -hmm. that's what makes it super private to the end user if they do share it with say a regulated entity that needs that access they can share that access right with that one entity mm -hmm. uh, without, again, putting that data out there for everyone else to see. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's a key design criteria, is that even we don't have access to the data. Whereas, of course, with Facebook, they have access to all your data. <laughs> is there anything else? There, I mean, there's a lot to digest here, but is there anything else that maybe you'd like to add that we didn't cover um, or maybe they didn't ask or that you would like to share? Well, I think I would just summarize by saying that, you know, ultimately this is a a question of what kind of world do we want to to live in we've mm. we've um you know the last sort of 10 years has been a world of of social media and i i will give credit both to mark and to jack i think they both realize that that world is coming to an end as mm -hmm. the dominant paradigm i mean mark proactively disrupted himself by deciding that uh, facebook is old news and he has 
called his new company Meta. Mm -hmm. uh, you now you can question the sincerity, but I would not question the fact that he realizes that the uh, the cheese has moved, mm -hmm. and, and there's going to be a new new game in town. And Jack resigning from Twitter and deciding to put his energy into the world of, of Square and what Square is beginning to do with blockchain and DeFi um, is an indication that even the, the titans of today realize that the world is uh, shifted and changing. And so we all as individuals and in the organizations that we're, we're part of, we can be, you know, part of that change or, or we can have, we, there's a little poem that I, that I hear, I believe I hear, which is each day I hope and pray that tomorrow will be the same as today. And so there will be a large group of people, groups and organizations that are kind of holding on to the web 2.0 world just because it's familiar and it's economically beneficial for them to do so. So just like you might be suspect of whether Exxon is going to be the uh, folks that bring us the solar energy solution of the future disrupting themselves, I, I would question whether we expect the, the Web 2.0 titans to be the ones that are going to leading the charge to disrupt themselves and bring the new world. Um, they might do some things defensively, but I think the future is going to be brought by a new generation of founders, a new generation of protocols, and a new generation of risk takers rather than the, uh, the, the usual suspects bringing us uh, the future that, you know, we either we or our kids are going to going to live it. And so I am encouraging everyone to be proactive and self-responsible and, and start to do the things that will make us familiar with being in charge of our own destiny, as opposed to kind of leaving that to the, uh, the titans of uh, industry and the usual suspects in government. Um, so embrace it, be a little bit afraid of it, but, mm -hmm. but be proactive and be part of it rather than having it just happen to you. That's my uh, that's my swan song on that one. <laughs> wow, thanks, Greg. Um, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, Mitya, any final thoughts? No, I mean you, you cannot top what Greg just said. No, so I, I, I would just <laughs> add that if you are interested in in kind of, I mean, we talked about a lot of things, but to reach out, whether you're are just interested in exploring the space, you want to join Global ID, or or you just want to work with us as well. I mean, any 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 way shape or form please do so because yeah it, it's going to take a lot of us to kind of start to make this uh, revolution happen yeah and rome wasn't built in a day either right so well thanks so much for for teaching us about digital identity sovereign identity what you guys are contributing um giving us sort of the motivation to think about what kind of world we want to live in this was definitely extremely informative for me I, i've learned a lot so and um, i'm sure the listeners will as well so thanks so much um we'd love to have you back and maybe some time to to see how you're progressing and and um, where you are with your roadmap um, in the future. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, you too. Thanks again to our guest, as well as thank you everyone for listening. A big thanks goes to Coin Market League for co-sponsoring this episode. Thank you also to the Baria Music team for providing their music. You can check out their latest album on bariamusic.com. You can find all supporting information on our website, blockchainrecorded.com, and listen to us on Google, Apple, and Amazon Podcasts, as well as Spotify, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Stay healthy and tuned for our next episode.